Hey, well, we're going we're gonna to actually finish the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning, and we're going to be looking at the entire chapter. Now, in previous lesson, we, we already saw the first 11 verses, but we're going to revisit those and then cover the rest of the chapter. And I entitled the Bible study, Living with the Knowledge of Our Glorious Future. It's a fact, well-known fact, that knowing a future outcome can determine, uh, determine our present conduct while we anticipate that future outcome. I, can, I experienced this truth firsthand when I was a little kid. Uh, I have a brother, Bob, who's like 18 months older than me. And uh, at the time, we were still living under the lie of Santa Claus. And it, Christmas time was approaching. And one day in mid-December, my brother Bob comes breathlessly to me and he tells me that he has something to show me. He found something that he wants to show me. And so while my father was at work and my mother was in the laundry doing laundry, um, my brother took me into their bedroom and into their closet. And there stacked in the back of the closet were these gifts, the very things that he and I had asked for. We thought in the first moment, it was like, wow, we've been lied to. It hasn't been Santa Claus at all. It's mom and dad. But then we realized Wow, this is amazing. And so for all of those couple of weeks before Christmas, we were just angels. <laughs> Every time we addressed my mother, our voice was a little higher and a little sweeter. Like, yes, mother, I'll get that for you. Can I help you in any other way? And there was just brotherly love between me and Bob. And we were living in the knowledge of a future blessing. And it was just glorious. Well, this is exactly where the Lord leaves and leads us, is that we Christians who have read our Bibles, which we do here every week, we live in the knowledge of a future blessing. The Lord Jesus wants us to be aware what he has planned for us. And he wants us to know that we are not appointed to his wrath, a wrath that is coming. It's coming for a Christ-rejecting world, but it is not coming for us. You see, we are the bride of Christ, and like a loving husband, Jesus wants to comfort our fears. He wants to spur us on to holy living, living that is pleasing in his sight. He wants to give us a sense of urgency for the very thing I prayed for just, just after the worship time, that, Lord, Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Let us see a world. Let us see people in our lives that don't know you and understand that without knowing you, they are destined for eternal damnation. And so we look at the words that Paul the Apostle wrote. Paul the Apostle was Christ's messenger to the Thessalonians. And he closes this wonderful epistle by enlightening them to the things God wanted them to know about the end times. His exhortation to them is also to us that we Christians, we are not appointed to the wrath of God. We should be, with the knowledge that we have of the outcome that God has prepared for us, comforted. We should be spurred on to holiness we should be urgent about the business of the kingdom. And so today, as we finish up this chapter, we're going to first look at a summary of the things that God wants us to know, why he wants us to know them, 
and then how we should live in the knowledge of those things. And so if you would, please stand with me. We're going to start out by just reading the first 11 verses. And these 11 verses are very important truths that you should hold in your heart because these indeed bring comfort. Here's what Paul says. He says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. You are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. But let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other. And edify one another, just as you also are doing. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words, Lord, we look around us in this world that we live in. And Lord, we see the signs. We see the signs of the season that we're in, Lord. We anxiously await your return for us, God. The things that you have told us do indeed bring us comfort, Lord. Because we are not appointed to the wrath that is coming on a Christ-rejecting world. Lord, I pray this morning as we review this final chapter of this book, God, that you would impress these things upon our hearts. You would edify our minds and comfort our hearts, knowing the things that are yet to come and knowing how dearly and desperately you love us, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, one thing that we know for sure, if you've been living as a Christian for very long, you know this very well. Jesus and the truth that he represents divides people. Jesus said it, right? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. The sword he's talking about is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. To know Jesus and his word is to be separated from the rest of the world in many key ways. The verses we just read provide a pretty sharp contrast between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. We, he says, are sons of the light and of the day. They are of the night and darkness. We are to be sober and awake to the times and the seasons. They are asleep and drunk to the times and seasons. We have obtained salvation because of what we know. They are appointed to wrath. And so he provides here some things that are kind of in summary fashion, things that we should know as believers. And so we see there in verse one, he says, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. Now, the times and the seasons Uh, One of the things that he has already laid out in this particular chapter is the the, the concept or the doctrine of the rapture of the church. We saw that when we were in chapter 4 between verses 13 and 18. A time that is appointed when Christ will come after the fullness 
of the Gentiles come in. That is to say that after every single believer that Christ has determined will be in his kingdom, after that final person is brought into his kingdom, the Lord comes in the air and calls the church up to himself. It says there in chapter 4, in the twinkling of of an eye. And there's no other sign as we stand here and sit here today. There's no other sign that needs to be shown to us. There's no other event that needs to be reached before that imminent return of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called an imminent return. It's because it could happen at any time. And so that's the season we live in. By the way, it's the season they lived in. And so we, we, we know that that is something that is in the future. Now, he refers in verses 2 and 3 to the day of the Lord. He says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pangs upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, at the present time, we live in a world where Satan basically has his way within that which God allows Um, And that which the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, restrains. But the world is really ruled by the ruler of this present age, which is Satan. The day of the Lord, as he identifies it there in verse 2, identifies the time that marks the period when God will reclaim the earth for Jesus Christ. It begins with him taking the church off the earth It proceeds to the purification of the nation Israel and the judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world in the seven years known as the tribulation and then progresses to that thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. This entire period known as the day of the Lord. And this day, the beginning of it, which is the church being off the earth and then the tribulation, this is something that the the Christ-rejecting world is completely ignorant of, and it will come as a total surprise to them. The world does not expect what the Bible preaches because it does not, the the world does not receive what Christ has preached. The world does not believe the words of Jesus Christ. And this was true in a couple of other notable times in man's history. During the days of Noah, as Noah is building an ark, and we can imagine that Noah is building this massive structure. For any of you who have gone to the ark encounter and seen the sheer size of this thing, it's breathtaking. And it is made in accordance with the dimensions that are outlined in scripture. And so you can imagine the people living at Noah's time, and they're seeing this a massive structure. And they, at some point, someone's got to ask Noah, What is this? And he says, a boat. And they say, what's a boat? It's a big structure for sailing in water. Why would you need this, given that it's sitting here in the middle of dry land? Well, because the Lord is going to bring judgment upon the earth. And the springs under the earth are going to open up. And it's going to rain like it's never rained before because it's never rained before that time. And the earth is going to be flooded and everything on it, save for those beings, creatures who are in this ark, they're all going to perish. And I'm sure they laughed him to scorn. And it took a hundred years to build this thing. 
and they laughed every day of it. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.20 about these people. He's, he's talking about those who were formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. You see, you could say, wow, it, that's a long time for the Lord to wait to bring judgment because we read in scripture the earth was desperately wicked at that time. So wicked that God said, okay, I'm going to start over. And yet, that period of grace is essential. It always precedes judgment. God is not a capricious judge. He doesn't just take a look at you and say, I don't like the way this guy looks and take you out. No. God is gracious and merciful and gracious and merciful and merciful and gracious to a point. And when people are determined to reject God, he, uh, he gives them over to that which they want, which is separation from God, and judgment comes. Equally, when the angels came to visit Lot in Genesis chapter 19 and told him he needs to get his family out of that city because it's going to be destroyed the next day. And they were very convincing because they were right there in the house with Lot. And Lot, we read, went to his sons-in-laws to warn them of the coming destruction of Sodom. And the passage tells us that he, they thought he was joking. And I can tell you that there's a lot of people in this world that think we're joking. In fact, more than that, they think we're crazy. If someone random on the sidewalk who is not a believer in Jesus Christ were sitting in here today, they would probably have gotten up by now and left, believing that this is utter, total nonsense. And not surprising because God is omnipotent. He knew that would be the hearts of people of this time. And so using the Holy Spirit to, to inspire Peter to write, Peter wrote these words in 2 Peter chapter 3, between verses 3 and 7. Peter wrote, know this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and say, where's the promise of his coming? You, know, you could imagine that person getting up right now, laughing and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Things have been going on just as they always were. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. We just read about that in Genesis. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You see, the only reason the world has not been destroyed now up till this point is simply because of the graciousness and the mercy of God. Every one of you sitting here today is at least more than three years old. So you know what the last three years has been like, don't you? I've never seen so many people who previously were not Christian and were not students of prophecy all of a sudden asking really good questions. What in the world is going on? Why are things moving in this way? What's going to become of us? 
It seems like the institutions of human beings are crumbling at the same time that we see things that are literally part of the physical environment, the ecology of the earth, seemingly straining and stressing because of the world and the current shape that it's in. And there's one other thing that God wants us to know, and that's in verses 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. It troubles me to know that there are factions and teachers in the greater church who teach that the church will go through the tribulation period. It's interesting because the tribulation period was described in great detail in the Old Testament. And guess what it was called? Jacob's trouble. Jacob, another name for Israel. This tribulation period has two principal objectives. Purify Jacob. Purify the nation Israel. And secondly, bring judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. In the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, in the third chapter, we see the letter to the faithful church of Philadelphia. And they are commended all over the place in that letter. And the Lord says, because you kept my word to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial that will come upon the whole world. We are not appointed to the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is coming. Those will argue, yeah, but... Jesus said in this world we'll have tribulation. So surely he meant that period too. No, the tribulation we have in the world, which we have every day, is from a broken, sinful creation that we did, human beings did, and we are simply living in our own corruption. What we read between chapters 6 and 18 of Revelation is a whole nother kettle of fish. It is judgment from the throne of God and the magnitude and the duration and the intensity is beyond anything the earth has ever experienced heretofore. And so God wants us to know these things. Now, he gives us some reason as to why he wants us to know these things. We saw in the last verse of chapter 14, after describing the rapture, the moment of rescue. He came to our rescue. He takes us off the earth before all of the fireworks start. Why does he tell us that? Verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Look at verses 8 through 11 of our text this morning. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Edify one another, just as you are also doing. God wants us to know these things and then to bring us comfort because we will be rescued. And he speaks very specifically about the things that will protect us, protecting our hearts through the breastplate of faith and love. The love of Christ is in us. We show that love of Christ to others, but it comes from Christ. And that love that we have experienced is the same love that will save us from 
what's to come. He, he tells us to protect our minds with the helmet of hope. This is not a hope so. Oh, I hope we're right about this. No, this is a hope based upon a future certainty that is part of God's word and God can't deny himself. And so these are things that he, he wants us to, to know for comfort. But then he also calls us to holiness. And frankly, the rest of this whole chapter is instruction in living holy lives. Because we know God's word and who we are in Christ, we should adopt for ourselves eternal values. Values that are modeled to us by our king. We want to live as our king lives. You know, it's, it's uh, kind of the thing of our day and probably previous days that whenever someone is raised up in the minds of one of our young folks as a hero, whether it be an athlete, a musician, an actress or actor, whatever, all of a sudden you see that young person starting to take on uh, the characteristics and the affectations of, of uh, that hero of theirs. Of course, advertisers know that. That's why they pay super athletes literal tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to sponsor a shoe because if you want to be like Stephen Curry you've got to wear his shoe or his hat or his jersey because you want to model your hero well Christ is our hero Christ is our rescuer and he says if you love me keep my commandments and so holy living is all about that there's another uh, thing we need to keep in mind and that is that although our sins have been judged at the cross of Christ and therefore we will never answer for those sins again Christ answered for those sins however Christ will judge the church on the basis of that which we have done in our mortal bodies whether it be in furtherance of the kingdom of heaven or not uh, Paul writes of this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's speaking to Christians now. And he's not speaking of the great white throne judgment, which is for sinners. He's speaking of what is known as the Bema seat judgment. It's, it's a, a seat of judgment that's much like uh, when runners in a race uh, finish the race and now they're on the dias and, and they're given rewards first place second place third place of course in this day it's down to 27 and 28th place but you know what i mean and this he, he says there we must appear before the judgment seat of christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad and first john uh chapter 2 verse 28 even suggests the possibility that as believers before the Lord, when that day comes, that there might be those that, that feel shame for the fact that they didn't contribute more or they, they had things in their life that really uh, reduced or depreciated their witness for Christ. He says there, now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And so the Lord wants to spur us on to holy living. He wants to comfort us. He wants to spur us on to holy living. And then he also wants to give us a sense of urgency about the business of the kingdom. He says there in verse 6 of our text, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
You see, the world is anesthetized by the pleasures, the passing pleasures of the world. I've said it many times, but in our society, we're just over-entertained. We have so much entertainment that it's hard for people to get off the couch. This is an affliction that has overtaken our younger generation. The only muscles they really work are the ones in their thumbs for playing video games and the like. And yet we should, as believers, we should be about the business of the Father. And so he takes the rest of the chapter to give us instructions about how that holy living should play out in our lives. We know what's coming. We know that a time of terrible judgment is coming upon the earth, both to purify the Jewish people and to bring judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. We know that the Lord is going to take us off the earth before that happens. We know that we'll be in heaven with him until he's ready to return at the end of the tribulation to reign and rule with him for a thousand years. And the Lord wants, to know, wants us to know that, to comfort us, to spur us on to holy living, to give us a sense of urgency. So what does that holy living look like? Well, look at verses 12 and 13 of the text. He says there, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. It's hard for me to read this because it sounds self-serving. Thankfully, I didn't write this. But here's the thing that really took my breath away this week. Because every week as I'm getting ready for the coming week, I pull down to my laptop all of the scriptures that I'm going to be encountering in that week. And I noticed something curious. If you recall last Sunday, I, I, I announced uh, our succession plan here that I'll be in the pulpit until June the 25th and starting July 1st, Vince Vincent will become the pastor of the church. And when we were in men's Bible study on Tuesday, lo and behold, this same doctrinal statement came up in that study, we were finishing up in chapter 13 of Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And now here we have, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love, etc., the Lord has a message for the church. This is why I say, read your whole Bible. Read it every day. Don't leave any out. Don't worry about, well, I need to read something relevant for right now. You don't know what relevant is right now because you don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. God does. He knows where you are and you're reading through the Bible. He speaks to you from the word. And so here's God speaking to this church and saying, hey, th by the way, let me just thank you all for the love, the respect, the, the care, the encouragement that you've given me in my 20 years as the pastor here, I've been very appreciative of that. I know brother pastors who have suffered terribly at the hands of the sheep. All of a sudden, the sheep grew claws and fangs. <laughs> and that hasn't happened here, and I'm just so thankful for that. And I want that for Vince. You know, Vince is half my age. But the Lord is going to give him the kind of wisdom 
that you need. You know, sometimes it's the more mature people, the, the, the people who are longer in the word, that can sometimes be the most dismissive of the pastor. They know the word very well. Huh, I could be up there teaching that Bible study. What am I listening to this guy for? Oh, he didn't say that right. He doesn't pronounce those names very well. Yes, Lord. But the fact of the matter is, God has given that man the anointing. Like I said, we didn't ordain Vince. Christ ordained Vince. We just celebrated it. And so here's going to be a young man who's going to come into your pulpit. And, and some of you are going to be twice or more his age. And he's going to be giving you wisdom. And you need to listen to it. And you need to thank him for it. Because he is God's servant. And he is bringing to you what he has prayed about all week that God wants to give you. That's the way I did it. That's the way I know he'll do it. And so the Lord is telling us that. The Lord tells us in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. He himself gave us that. This is not something where, I mean, there are instances, don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are instances in this world where somebody is so, uh, uh, so determined to get an audience, to have an audience, to have a platform, that they push themselves into the, into the pulpit and they start a church that's more like a personality cult. And, and anybody who has any godly discernment can smell that a mile away. And those things always end badly. But if you're, if you're in an actual spirit-filled church, that person in the pulpit is there because God himself Put them there. And so that's the first thing is, hey, you've got godly leaders over you. Be mindful and respect them and show them the love that they're due. Now, he goes on, <laughs> he goes on to speak about how you minister one to another. That's the hard part. Verse 14, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, Uphold the weak, be patient with all. Now let's start with the unruly. I think right now, one of the great problems in the greater church is lack of conviction. There is an awful lot going on in the greater church that's unruly. There's an awful lot that flies in the face of the written word of God. And people are afraid to confront it because they don't want to be labeled non-inclusive. We have sacrificed truth on the altar of in inclusion and unity. And the mistake that we're making, I'm going to speak about this a lot, by the way, at that prophecy conference coming up in Burlington. We, we believe that we should be reconciling people to the church. So we're bringing people into the church and making sure that everybody is reconciled one to another. Terrible idea. Ungodly idea. A church that is doing what the Lord has commanded it to do is reconciling people to God. Honestly, my, my take, as long as I've been pastoring, is I love every sheep that comes through the door. And if they want to leave the door, my only prayer is find another place where you are getting the true word of God. 
and then we're all happy. Because none of you are my sheep. You're the Lord's sheep. I'm just an under-shepherd in this particular location. But, <laughs> but when there's unruliness in our midst, it takes conviction. It takes standing on the truth. It takes doing something that's very difficult, that is to speak the truth in love. That is to say, brother, because I love you, I have to bring this to you. What you're doing here doesn't square with the word of God. If we fail to do that, if, for example, in my case as pastor, if I failed knowing that there was an unruly member of the church in our midst and knowing that and they know I know it and other people know I know it and I say or do nothing, I harm everybody in the room. Those who are uh, not as long in the faith will believe, okay, well, I guess that's okay. Or worse yet, they believe, well, the Bible says thus and so, but we don't really have to take that literally. It's death for a church. And so he tells us, I exhort you. He's not saying, hey, here's a suggestion. No, I exhort you. Warn those who are unruly. Now he says, comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. The faint-hearted are those who are living in discouragement and despair. In our walk with Christ, we all, we all start from different places. And I want to just encourage you to, to understand that not everybody that you encounter in the body of Christ has come from the same place you have. Some of you have come from great homes. You had wonderful parents. You had godly parents. You were exposed to Christ at an early age. And yeah, maybe you had your walk on the wild side during your college years or whatever. But ultimately, that which you learned as a young person ultimately grew in your life and you're walking with the Lord. Not everybody sitting here had that experience. Some of us here had terrible lives growing up. Some of us were exposed to things at a very tender age that made an indelible print on their hearts. They've seen things that they can't unsee. They've experienced things that haunt them to this day and have pulled them in different directions. Some of those directions very sinful. They struggle with that daily. They love the Lord with all their heart. They've given their life to Christ. And yet they are still in the midst of something that they don't understand and believe they can't control. Now we know who can control it, but they're in a moment of despair and discouragement. Do you simply just pile on? Oh, I guess you're not really saved. I guess nothing's really changed in your life. I guess there's no purpose in having any fellowship with you. Would that be what Jesus would do? Was that what Jesus did? did do no of course not he went to that brother he went to that sister he encouraged them he helped them take them their eyes off themselves put them on jesus and sometimes when you're in that pit of despair you can't even lift your eyes but then along comes a brother or sister and like a cool drink of water, refreshes that person. Says, hey, come on, brother. 
I love you because Christ loves you. And we can talk about this. And we can hold each other accountable. These are people who are faint-hearted and they need you. We have been given a gift. It's one another. And the love of Christ, he chose to manifest through you, through me, through others. And then there's the weak. Now, believe it or not, the weak are almost on the other side of the spectrum. They're militant about what it says here to the point of legalism. In other words, if you do not conform to a specification that they have derived on their own, believing it to be spoken of in Scripture, if you don't worship God the way they worship God, you have a problem. And we've talked a lot about legalism because the Lord talked a lot about it. The Lord saw the hypocrisy of the Pharisees because they they want to impose on everybody a standard they're not keeping. They do their, be- their level best to show a standard that they're not keeping. And then they, they, they use that to vault themselves over other people because they're not keeping that same standard. And here's what we have to understand. Christ died for those people too. There are those people who don't understand or appreciate the freedom that they have in Christ. And rather than push them away, we need to be patient with them. We need to show them love. We need to help them understand that Christ has given us freedom from legalism. That is to say that these things must be done in order to be ceremonially done in order to be acceptable before God. You must get in the water immediately after you pray the prayer of salvation. Otherwise, you're not really saved. Those kind of things. And so he's telling us, these are all things that we we need to know in order to keep the body strong and loving. He says there in verse 15, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Responding evil for evil always escalates things, always turns out bad for everybody involved. Now look at verses 16, 17, and 18, because you can can think of these as, as almost one thing. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That last verse there, verse 18, man, that really personalizes it. Rejoice always. Well, always isn't always wonderful. Sometimes always is awful. Sometimes it seems like we just have rolling thunder going on in our lives. We go from depth to depth in terms of the things we're encountering. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Oh, now I'm starting to understand how I can rejoice even when things are horrible. Because if I'm in prayer... I'm not, because we study the Bible together, I'm not misguided on what prayer accomplishes. I don't for even a moment undertake the idea that I can order heaven around because I've got dump trucks full of faith. No. 
God certainly invites me to petition the Lord for that which I seek. But that which I seek above all else is the will of God to be done in my life. And so as I'm praying to the Lord in the depths of my despair and in my misfortune, God is speaking to me about what? Oh, verse 18. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If I'm praying about what's going on in my life, and I'm rejoicing in it. Why am I rejoicing in it? It's not so good right now. Why? It's because this is the will of God for me. And the, the companion to all this is Romans 8.28. For we know, for we know that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, who walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. We know that. And so... I could rejoice about everything because I'm praying all the time and I'm giving thanks because what I'm experiencing is God's will for my life and there's nothing I desire more than God's will for my life. You see how that works? You know, you really got to ponder. You got to click all these little pieces together and then boom, it's a Rubik's Cube and all the sides are the same color. It's amazing. Do not quench the spirit, verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. We are spirit-filled believers, right? The spirit is operating in us 24-7. We're not always tuned into the channel, though. Sometimes we're tuned into a different channel. Sometimes we're turned into worldly news daily. And what we're seeing in the, in the screen of our mind is worldly things. And so the spirit can be directing us, leading us, guiding us, assuring us, comforting us, exhorting us, anointing us. And if we are so mired in the world, we can be quenching the spirit. That is to say, here's this fire burning in us and it wants to be stoked and it wants to consume us and we're pouring water on it while we're, our eyes are somewhere else. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Now, that has a, a, a myriad of, of connotations here. First, first and foremost, don't, don't despise the prophecies that we just looked at. We know what's coming, don't we? And what should that give us? Comfort, a spur onto holiness, urgency. Don't despise that. Don't ignore that. But there's other prophecies as well. I believe that what we saw in this passage and in Hebrews chapter 13 with the men on Tuesday was prophetic. The Lord is speaking forth about something very applicable, very specific to where our church is today. And this happens all the time, by the way. It happens when you read your Bible. It happens when you commune with other believers. It happens when we get together on Wednesdays and pray in that room. And the Lord is putting things on our heart. The lights are going on all over the place. And the Lord is speaking forth to us. You know, people have a misconception that prophecy is always foretelling the future. This is why people constantly go to those little houses that have prophetic signs out in front. Come in, have your fortune told. I mean, I lost all confidence in those people because the first thing they ask you is your name. Oh, you should know that. <laughs> I'm paying good money. You should know my name. They don't. But sometimes prophecy is speaking forth. It's telling you, look, this is what God has for you today. And that's just, that's just wonderful. 
He says there, test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Boy, I'll tell you what. One thing the 21st century will be known for, for centuries to come, if there are any left, is we have devised all kinds of new forms of evil. We have, we have come up with ways in which we can not only give an appearance of evil, but we can transmit it to all four corners of the globe. This is why evil is waxing worse and worse, because the multiplication effect of the internet has said that every single little area of evil that might have only existed in some small little pocket in ages past is now broadcast to the world. And anybody else who has that weakness or proclivity now can see that, and they encourage one another. They form a chat room about it. And before you know it, it's a thing. We have a direction here, abstain from every form of evil. Virtual or real, it doesn't matter. Now, he gives this beautiful blessing and admonition at the end of the letter. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. If you took all that we read between verses 12 and 22, what you have there is a recipe for sanctification. And it's the Lord's mission in your life to complete that process. Now may the Lord God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Do what? Sanctify you. He will do it. Do you, do you, do you understand the import of that? You know, sometimes we could just be so discouraged, man, Lord, I can't believe this is... This is my life. This is what I said. This is what I thought. This is what I did. Who am I anyway? And then we read things like this. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren and sistren, which is what I've been doing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you as well. Now, after our Sanctity of Life Sunday next week, which we couldn't have in January because PSS had some change in staff and also we had to put it off till now, we will be starting 2 Thessalonians uh, two weeks from today. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this precious epistle, Lord. We thank you for the truths that Paul just packaged up here beautifully. How tenderly and completely he loved the believers in Thessalonica, Lord. How tenderly and completely you love us. That your spirit would, would anoint Paul to write it and your spirit through the power of many different people would transmit it so that we hold it in our hands today, that we too might be comforted, that we might be spurred on to holy living, that we might have a sense of urgency for bringing others into the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that has saved our very souls. We thank you, Father, for all this. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy this beautiful day.